stay tuned for The Lynn Show. Today, I'm dedicating the entire show to an interview I did with Andrei Malayev Babel, an immigrant from Russia who has done the impossible. As an adult immigrating to a foreign country where he could barely speak the language, Andrei has made a sustained and successful career in theater in a foreign country. Listen to Andre's journey. It's inspirational. So hang on. Here come the show. Hearing from an inner voice. Finding choice where there's no choice. With gentle prodding from person you think you have to be, not the person other people are, not the person somebody may have told you you needed to be or even told you you were, not even the person you may currently think you are, but the person you really are. Unfortunately, too many people have experiences in their childhood which discourage them from being some of who they really are. And children are capable of pretense. And so many children pretend they are not that thing that was bringing a consequence they didn't want. Unfortunately, many become so good at the pretense that they come into adulthood having forgotten 
who they really are. And the Lynn Show is about saying, if this happened to you, it may not be impossible to recover who you really are. In my shows, I interview people who make their living or their life with an art, because when you listen to them, you can hear what it sounds like to be who you really are. And in my interview today with Andre, what you hear is a person who knew from the very beginning of his life who he was and was one of the lucky ones, one of the ones who is encouraged to be all that he is. And that made it possible for him to pursue every aspect of life that interests or compels or delights him. It's a wonderful story. And here now to tell it is Andre Malayev Babo. I interview people who make their living or their life with an art. Clearly you are doing that. And I always ask the same question. And that is, how did the art capture you? How did it happen? How did it start? How did it get you? But just the atmosphere in which I grew up was very artistic. Mm -hmm. Because my grandfather was a writer, my grandmother was was working, uh, getting his works published, um, and or writing memoirs about him. There were lots of friends at the house constantly who were either writers or actors or directors or artists. My mother was an architect. So the atmosphere, as you see, was very artistic. And Where did you grow up? In Moscow, uh-huh. in Moscow, and in, in Russia's capital at that point, the capital of the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. So I think that this is how it all started. So there are lots of inspiration. I was taken to concerts, uh, musical theater, you know, drama theater. So, so the whole idea of uh, being a creative and artistic person, I mean, it's almost as though one wouldn't have come out of that soup as something else? Probably not. Probably not. I mean, literature would have been another uh, avenue, perhaps, but now I'm writing, but you see, I'm writing about theater, or I'm writing adaptations of plays. Mm -hmm. So I'm doing different things. I studied music, and I still continue working with music, but it's music for the theater. Uh If I write, it's about the theater, or for the theater. Uh, I act, direct, I teach. So you see, I do many things, yes, but they're all dedicated to the theater. Well, okay, so how did that happen, the love affair with the theater? Uh, It's difficult to say, but, you know, it it started very early because, uh, as all of the kind of children who grow up to be actors, I was doing some kind of domestic performances at a very (laughs) early age, puppet theater, which is also very traditional. Uh, I was also directing because uh, there were these performances that usually were connected with birthday parties. <laughs> and guests would come and inspired by one family tradition that I observe, I would write a play, which was usually a parody, a burlesque on some famous fairy tale or something. I'd write music for it, I would like songs, would write songs for it. And I would direct the guests, who were all obviously adults, and yeah. I was a little kid, I would direct them in this performance. How old were you when you started doing oh, this? Oh, I don't know, probably we are talking about 12 years old, uh-huh. something like that. Yeah. So I would direct them and then they would basically perform this at the end of the party. They would indulge you? 
they would absolutely indulge me and uh, for quite a while actually because of how early I started directing mm -hmm. I was working with actors who were sometimes significantly older than I was <laughs> yes but you had the permission the uh, encouragement I don't know what the word is the that it, it wasn't a stretch it wasn't that it was just yes well of course he can do this I was surprised, but yes, I, I did get the permission, and yeah. nobody ever really doubted me because of my age. Right. Nobody said, who do you think you are, or what do you think you're no, doing? No, for some reason, that. people kind of went along. Yeah. Probably long before I knew what I was really doing. I'm sure that's right. Yeah, they kind of went along. Yes, I'm sure that's so. right. And that is such an incredible gift to um, someone who's, whatever it is you're going to do, if people start right off telling you, that you have the right to do it, that you're good at it, that, that, you know, I mean, at the beginning, no one ever really is, so, but to get that right off the bat, yeah. uh, there's no struggle attached. Yeah, to get that acceptance. Yes. I, I wouldn't say that I had to, to seriously fight for it, because when I entered theater school in Moscow, I entered on the directing track, and I was 19. And all of my fellow students were in their 30s or even 40s because the idea was in Russia, at least the idea is that if you are training to be a director, you need to have had some professional experience and certainly have certain knowledge of life. Oh my God. So how did that, how did you? I don't know. I was the, I was the only probably person in, in the history of that school, at least you know, as far as I'm aware, who was accepted onto the directing track at that age. And you, did you know at the time how unusual that was? I, yes, I did. Yes, I did. I was trying to actually enter on a more typical kind of, for my age, acting track. Right, so uh, that you could get the acting and the life of behind course, you. Of course, and <laughs> right. I would enjoy it. And, right. I, and I continued acting and I act still, mm -hmm. right? But that's not was wasn't the emphasis of my training. And thankfully, the Russian idea of training directors is that they have to go through the entire acting program. Yes. And then on top of it, they have to learn to direct because, you know, you're ending up working with actors, so you might as well know how actors what work. What a concept. What a concept, <laughs> exactly. So, so were you doing them um, at the same time? Uh, it was the program for directors, but acting classes were just part of the curriculum. Yeah, In right. addition to directing, the history of theater, the history of art, and other subjects. I you loved them all. I, especially the, you know, studying the, the communist science, because we're talking about the 1980s. So what we what studied, is the communist science? Well, it's whatever Marx said and wrote <laughs> and Lenin and, and so on. So all these subjects are no longer taught in Russian theater schools or any other schools for that matter. But you know that. But them. there was such a, well, it would be a huge exaggeration. <laughs> I mean, nobody really held us kind of responsible to knowing this, but it was so-called scientific communism. Can uh, you imagine? No. There was such thing as scientific communism. <laughs> yes. So that's what it was in the history of the Communist Party and, you know, things yes, like yes. that. But so these are required subjects. The required subjects <laughs> until uh, after the time of Perestroika, obviously, you know, and, and I was you know, in school. You were before that? Correct. Yeah. Okay. All right, so you, at 19, with this huge block of experience behind you, already uh, have written and acted and directed, really, essentially, most of your life, right? You go to school, and did you think you had to unlearn stuff? I mean, were you stubborn, or were you open? Was it easy for you? 
Do you know what I mean? I was open. I, I think that I wasn't a, a very good student because certain things came easy to me. And I think a lot of things I did just to satisfy the requirement. Unfortunately, this student mentality is, is, is not uncommon. And now that I work with students a lot, you <laughs> you know, of course I recognize it. Yeah. You know, and I do realize that there's a lot of things that I thought I understood and yes. I didn't really. And I think that this is something that's, again, very common. That was the quest that's actually the question I was asking. Mm -hmm. And I do think it's very common. I think it's especially common, well, maybe this is an exaggeration or maybe this is a myth. But in order to be an actor, you really do have to believe that you have something to offer, that you know something, right? You can't get up there, <laughs> you know. You better have the sense of purpose yes. behind this. Why you are doing it, what it is that, that you are either trying to contribute, or at least what it is that you cannot help but express, express. cannot help but say yes, to yes, the yes, audience. Yes, 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 yes. So I'm, maybe this isn't true, but it seems to me, just talking to you, that, that pretty much all of the people who do this will come to to learning with a kind of sense I already know this. Is that wrong? In contemporary situation, yes, because especially if we are talking about graduate school, uh, usually people come to the graduate acting training program like ours with some undergraduate background. Yes. And it usually is in theater and in acting. But if you really look at how um, popular the art of acting is nowadays, and we have programs like the Actor Studio or some other programs where actors constantly talk about their art. Right, right. So right. I think that even when you come to the undergraduate program, you already have formed certain ideas. You heard something at least about method. You heard some actors interviewed. They told you exactly how they did they it. They did it, and yeah. so you already come with certain idea. Probably, and maybe you were taking theater classes in high schools. Right. Lots of high schools have theater and acting yes, yes, classes yes, yes, nowadays. Yes, yes. So really, I don't think that we are um, coming as a clean slate, which used to be the case with the actors of the old times, before Stanislavski, before the schools <laughs> of acting, yes. where actors really came as a clean slate and they were immediately thrown into practice, mm. and they failed and failed and failed until they succeeded, unless yes. they had this extraordinary gift uh, kind they, of natural. They, exactly. So I, that is where I think we are at certain disadvantage because depending, of course, on what it is that you heard, on what it is that you've been exposed to, mm. once you enter, let's say, a conservatory or even undergraduate program that has very particular set of beliefs, you may have to unlearn. You may already have to actually kind of be prepared for a certain turnaround instead of just absorbing what you are given. I imagine that is difficult and for actors. And learning is much more difficult than learning. Well, just as a general rule it is, but I would think for actors it's even more difficult. Because it's their very self. It's not something, uh, you know, it's not something they're writing on a pad. Or yes, it is. It, you it know, is it's their body, their nerves, yes, their and imagination, their feelings, it's them. Yeah, that's right. And then, and people are observing it. Yes. So they're there, you know, so imagine it's it's quite difficult if if you've already decided this is right for me, this is how I should do it, and then to have to undo. And that. I'm not even talking about how accessible uh, all kinds of movies and TV programs are today. So 
these young people, they've seen movies from the 30s, from the 40s, contemporary movies, yeah. soap operas, yes, right? right? It's TV shows and so on. And every time it's a, some kind of a very different style of acting. Yes. And very different way of kind of living on stage or living on the screen, right? Yeah. Or just performing. So I think already this influences there. They're copying a favorite yeah, yeah, yeah. actor, for yes, example, yes, and yes. their style and yes, so on. Yes, yes. And so there's a lot there already, which I, uh, I suppose uh, usually is, is not hugely helpful. No, I'm sure that's correct. I'm sure that's correct. Okay, so now we're a little ahead of where I want to... I wanna follow this line, but I want to go back. So at 19, was that true of you? Yes, definitely, definitely, because I was very much uh, enamored with certain style of acting and certain actors who probably would be called character actors. Uh -huh. And the art of physical characterization, external characterization, actually is, is really disappearing from contemporary theater to a certain degree. Uh -huh. Actors uh, are much more likely to be um, more or less remaining themselves physically and uh, being cast for their types rather than for their ability to, to be a chameleon, something. to become something. Yes. So we, we go to see a star because that star is predictable, because that star is mostly doing what they're doing, and that's what we kind of love about that star. In terms of transformation, well... This is usually kind of left to a makeup artist or something. Or sometimes we don't even, even ask for transformation. And I think that this style of acting was probably something that, that I really loved because I loved these chameleons that I saw. Yes. Uh, but it's a very particular style and, and also a very different process ultimately that probably is not kind of a good thing to have as, as your starting point. You, no, you, you grow into it. You grow into it. <laughs> you, but, but this is the story of your life. You are starting at the top uh, uh, everywhere. Yeah. So this is just more of that, right? Probably. probably. So, so, okay, so what did they do with you with this... this Pipsqueak, who came in with this idea about character well, acting? Well, you know, I think that they, that they brought us back to the truth, back to I am, so that you're not even playing any character. But, of course, that's also deceiving, because if you realize, understand it literally, and you decide that, aha, so first I need to learn how to just be myself on stage. Yes. That's also not true, because, of course, whenever the circumstances of your character's life are different from your circumstances... Then you can't be yourself. You can't be yourself. <laughs> right. You have to transform. Right. So this whole idea that this is really you is nothing but a pedagogical tactic. But if you really believe in it, I think you're also going to get stuck with the idea that, oh, I actually don't need to transform. Yes. Right? But transformation happens from day one. Without transformation, without the work of imagination, where you suddenly find yourself in a different situation, and therefore certain different aspects of you come out, yes. aspects that maybe don't usually come out in everyday life. Without that idea, you also don't have a very clear... Uh, vision of the process, because the process is you got to become different, even though you also cannot become entirely different so that you lose yourself in it. So you have to remain yourself while becoming different, and that's Ooh. the contradiction number one, which is very difficult for actors to really understand. Yes. Finally, if you don't become different, 
then you will never be able to experience what the character experiences ultimately. Without transformation, you will not have access to your artistic emotions. And it won't work. It won't be real. We won't believe it. No. Right. So transformation and experience, emotional experience, go together, actually. Okay, so that's what they um, tried to help you learn, or did help you learn, or focused on I, I for you? I think that probably uh, the approach to, to acting, uh, considering that we were really training as directors, was a little bit of a shortcut approach. And we were trained, and we even had, you know, full-blown production that we performed as actors at the end of our training. But I think that we were always looked upon, uh, they, they kind of cut us a slack, so to speak. Hmm. They, didn't, they didn't use the same uh, measures with us as they used with those who were on the acting track. We were supposed to be <sighs> training as directors, yes. and as long as we are passable actors, I think, they were absolutely satisfied. Okay, you I know, got the it. standards were different. I, I see. So you skipped a, st a step. Yes, and then I was really discovering myself as an actor later in my career after I have graduated. As, as a director. As, as a director. Okay, so then what happened? So and now you're getting, you're graduating as a director younger than anybody, right? Yes, by, by that time I already had an amateur theater company that I organized and was running for a while. I see. I was doing it parallel to my training. Uh, and then finally this theater company, after I graduated, became my first priority, and the company developed into a professional company. It was one of the first private theater companies in Russia after Perestroika. Because before Perestroika, you couldn't, couldn't start anything. anything. No, no, no. It doesn't matter. No, no, no. It doesn't right. matter what no. it is. Right. You know, whether it's a you know, grocery shop or, yeah, right. or theater company, nothing right. could be No, no. <laughs> right. So because of the shifts in the, in the policy, oh. we were actually able to you know, incorporate Perfect timing for you. It was a You're st idea. standing on the edge with this thing ready to go the minute, right? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I worked with this company for about eight years. And it's during these eight years that uh, I had a co-director who is now, you know, in, in Russian TV business. He's a producer and uh, and host uh, with, you know, with Russian TV. And uh, together we, we were kind of leading this company. He was directing, I was directing, I was acting. He acted occasionally, but he also took care of all the management, which right now I understand that I should really be bowing before him for... <laughs> having taken that load off, off of my shoulders. And uh, this company worked mostly with classical plays, but not your kind of, again, we talked about household names. There were not household name classics. There were less known classical yes, authors. Yes. So, and then ultimately we traveled all over Russia, or what was Soviet Union at that time. We traveled extensively. We performed in Moscow. And uh, we started an exchange program with two theater companies from the United States by the early 90s. And it's basically at that point that I came on an exchange, on a cultural exchange program, I came to the United States. When was that? That was 91. Wow. Wow. And so here you are. <laughs> so can you say how that happened? Uh, that happened uh, because uh, I 
my aunt actually lived in Washington, D.C. She was a friend with a university professor uh, through her husband. And this university professor working at the uh, University of Maryland, he uh, knew these actors who were very much interested in Russian theatrical tradition because part of their training was supposed to be Stanislavski's based. So they wanted to, to learn more. Yeah. And when he when this university professor, who was a professor of sociology, his name was John Robinson, he was a Russian sociologist, so he came to Russia frequently. He got to see our productions, he liked them, and he said, you really need to connect with my theater friends in the United States. Mm -hmm. And then we started simply going and visiting each other. Again, this was perestroika time. Yes, yes, yes. So it became possible. The yes. Iron Curtain was lifted. Yes. Something like this would have been Never. entirely impossible. Yeah. I, I, you know, let's say in the early 80s it, it would have been impossible. Even in the mid-80s it was problematic. But by late 80s, early 90s it, it became possible. So what happened uh, then, it was kind of, uh, uh, well, we come and see you, you come and see us, and, and then I said, how long are we going to be going and seeing each other, let's produce something together. So I really started trouble. And we did produce two productions, one classical Russian farce, another classical American farce. We rehearsed it in Moscow and showed it in Moscow. And then we rehearsed Both of them. Both of them. We rehearsed them it further in LA and we showed them in LA. Where? It was a it's an old historic theater called Heliotrope Theater. Yes, I know. So, you know. Mm -hmm. yeah. so uh, did you do the Russian play in Russian? Russian actors in Russian, American actors in English. It was a bilingual production. Wow. Which was another very kind of bold step. Yeah, I'm no kidding. So that's how we kind of stirred trouble and, and brought this collaboration further than just cultural exchange. Yes, yes. Because yes. cultural exchange is usually just mutual visits. Right, and, and hello, goodbye. Hello, goodbye. Right. So that's that was a huge thing that, that we that we did. Actually. So then, I mean, somehow <laughs> you wound up here. Yes, I mean, it, it happened uh, for two reasons, and one reason, which is very important reason, is, is my wife. I met my wife on my first trip to D.C. She was in the sociology class, led by that very professor of sociology, Jen Robinson, that I told you about, and she came to class late that day. She was considering skipping class, but then said, okay, this, these two Russian actors are going to be our guest speakers. So that's curious. So she had the last moment she decided to, to make the class, and she came in late, and the only uh, free seat was smack in the first row. So, needless to say, she attracted attention, and I uh, approached her after the um, after the class. And at that point, I think my English was still pretty bad. I was almost kind of approaching her through my interpreter. So you went up to this woman, and you you couldn't really talk to. I couldn't really talk to her the way that I will, kind of as freely as I wanted yeah. to. And then gradually. Uh, but we uh, went to the theater together, and uh, we met on other <laughs> occasions, uh, and that was still the trip where I was just enjoying, you know, watching theater and sightseeing right. and, and, and so on. And then uh, on the last night in D.C., I asked her if she would come to Moscow, and she said that she would, and, and she actually did, which was her first trip away from home, I think, in any direction. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. 
And so she certainly didn't speak any Russian. And she didn't speak any Russian, so she was there really at my mercy. So <laughs> that was very brave of her to do it. So, and um, kind of the rest, the rest is history. It's history, exactly right. Well, and then when you two decided, realized that you wanted to be together, I guess there was no chance she was going to go live in Moscow. Well, you guessed that right. I was, <laughs> I was inviting her and asking her that she, you know, that she would consider. But yes, my wife Lisa, she said no. <laughs> she wasn't interested in living in Russia. Uh, and at the same time, it was interesting because my career in the States was kind of developing because it was a very strange uh, period in in Russia where audience stopped going to the theater. And uh, you probably know Russian theatrical culture and how important theater is in yes. Russian cultural yes. tradition. But it was very difficult period of the early 90s where there were such great hardships and people were so depressed. Theaters also weren't doing exactly what they were, should have been doing, but they were staging all of this depressing... I was going to say they were doing comedy. about how tough yeah. your life is. See, in America, in the Depression, we knew better, and we had all those, those wonderful comedies, oh, right? Yes. Oh, yes. But I understand why it happened, you see, because there are so many topics that were forbidden. Ah. that when suddenly it was allowed to talk about contemporary problems and hardships yes. and social ills, yeah, 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 yeah. right? They, wanted, they to. wanted to do it. And audiences had so much of it kind of in their own front yard right, right. that they just refused to they go. Don't. So uh, it all fortunately reversed because uh, theaters understood that they need to do classics right. and audiences immediately came back yeah. as long as, right. you know, as soon as theater started doing classics, and uh, by that time, however, I was already actually uh, uh, teaching at the Catholic University of America in D.C. at the drama department. I was a first a resident director at the Chamber Theater, which was a D.C. company, and then I was, you know, doing lots of classes also in D.C., training actors, um, and... Actually, in 98, I started my own theater company in Washington, D.C. Wow. So it kind of so happened that I was really able, obviously, to make with, a life with the support here. of my family, my wife, I was able to make a life here, the theater professional, which I must say is very rare. No because kidding. Let's face it, most of the people who immigrate do not end up working in the field that they trained in. Not only most of the people who emigrate, most of the people who decide they want to be in theater in the United States don't wind up working in their, career, their chosen career. Unfortunately, is also... Oh, my God, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think it speaks probably to your talent, your skill, and your perseverance. Uh, perhaps, or simply perhaps, uh, simply because of what we talked about earlier. The fact that I am able to do so many things in the theatrical field. Yes. Because maybe if I could only do one thing, yes. I would not have made it. Yes. But because I can teach and I can act and I can direct, you know, yes. and now I write about theater, yes. maybe this is what's kind of helping me to, to stick to theater and not to have to do You can have things. that if you like. I think it's probably talent, skill, and perseverance <laughs> myself. <laughs> All right, well, <laughs> I, I was learned to always take credit, so I'll take credit. Yes, yes. And, I, and you know, to go back, I, I really believe that that early experience of you can do it, you should do it, we want you to do it, we like it that you do it, that never leaves you. 
that becomes a part of how you feel about yourself. And you present that wherever you go. You present, oh, you should want me. You're going to want me, <laughs> you know. And I think that that's... I think that this is what was driving me for, for quite a while. I mean, every artist hits a certain crisis point. And I think that probably I also at, at some point uh, while in D.C. hit that crisis point where I was actually beginning to doubt. I don't know if it was I was doubting myself or I was I doubting that I can continue developing and grow in that particular environment. But you are right. I think for quite a long time I was driven by the license kind of and that's, the support. That's exactly right. That yeah. is exactly the kind of word I was looking for. Yeah. So, um, how did you wind up in Sarasota, Florida? Well, uh, I was... It's a magic number eight because I was... Uh, uh, my theater company in Moscow existed for eight years, and my DC theater company, which was very successful and won lots of Helen Hayes awards and nominations, and was embraced by, by the community, by the kind of uh, theater-going audience, and also by, by the press, uh, also existed for eight years. This is where I have to go back to the time in Moscow, where I was running a theater company as co-artistic director, but I didn't have to lift my finger. Yes, because you had a manager. To fundraise, let's oh. say, yes. Or to even worry about, you know, how we're going to get paid at the end of the month. Yes. Um, and not to mention all of the administrative right. work and so on. So that is something that I certainly got a full taste of in, in <laughs> D.C., because I was producing artistic director, so not only was I you know, directing and acting in some of the productions and, you know, in charge of the repertoire and casting. I was also in charge of the entire administrative operation and fundraising, oi. which is absolutely <laughs> oi. So, again, the people who know how to do it and people who have talent to do it and people who enjoy doing it uh, earned my respect. God bless them. And God bless them. And <laughs> God right. bless the people who give to right. the arts. Uh, but let's face it, it's not easy. No. Especially when you are at the same time running, you know, running artistic kind of operations. So, uh, or trying to, to continue developing as an artist. So, eight years was kind of enough. And I said that uh, I think that by now the managing part of it really beginning to affect how I develop as an artist. I also missed teaching because I was teaching at the Catholic, Catholic University of America for quite a while. But eventually uh, the company took priority. Yeah. Um, I was teaching there for two years as a full-time professor and then I continued teaching beyond that actually. Uh, doing very different classes for a while, but uh, I was missing a formal training because our training at the theater was actually all dedicated to productions. Ah. We tried to do formal training, but then a deadline would come and we'd start training actors specifically for the demands of this production. Right, yeah. right. Be it the part or be it particular you know, technique that they had to do it because a lot of this theater was movement oriented. There was a lot of movement, dance, uh, singing, pantomime. So it was really a theater of synthesis where mm. drama coexisted with other uh, arts. So at that point, uh, I felt that I would like to do teaching full-time again. And I would like to continue doing theater project, 
uh, theater projects in my spare time, which I do. Right. But I really wanted to get back to teaching full time. And, and you I, wanted to stop fundraising. <laughs> and I wanted to stop fundraising badly, yes. Yeah. Uh, and I applied for, for this position, and I was so fortunate that the opening came. Please tell me about ghosts. Tell me whatever you think somebody who's listening who might want to decide whether they come to see it or not. Well, with every Ibsen play there is a prequel that has never been written but is very um, easy to decipher from the play. I mean, there's a whole play that happened before the curtain is raised on ghosts. Wow! So, can you talk about that? Yeah, it's a 30-year-long uh, saga, so to speak. So, about 30 years ago, Helen marries her childhood friend, Lieutenant Alving, and another childhood friend of theirs, uh, Pastor Manders, is a good friend of the family, advisor, spiritual advisor, obviously. Uh, and uh, about one year into that marriage, she's suddenly running to, to the priest, uh, saying, save me. I want to leave my husband, he is uh, not faithful, he is abusive, and uh, I'd, like to, I'd like to be with you, because oh. apparently they always loved each other, the pastor and her. And the pastor is uh, fulfilling his duty, he restores her to her lawful husband, mm. and stops visiting their household, especially since shortly after that they move from town to the country estate where ghosts is going to take place 29 years later. A uh, son is born four years into the marriage, uh, but uh, of course, uh, uh, Lieutenant Alving, then Captain Alving, then Chamberlain of the court Alving, he never really amended his ways, and uh, his love of life continues to prevail. So he uh, is having all kinds of affairs outside of the house, which she is tolerating, but then he suddenly gets involved with a maid who is working on the property. And that is something that Mrs. Alvey cannot tolerate. Uh, a child is born by that affair. So the maid has to go, obviously <laughs> they give her a certain sum of money, and she marries a carpenter in town. And uh, that carpenter doesn't know exactly what's going on, but he knows that he is marrying a woman who is pregnant, and so the maid spins the story about some American or Englishman on the boat who left her $300 but sailed away, and uh, Pastor Manders marries the two, the same Pastor Manders marries the carpenter and uh, Joanna, who is in actuality the mistress of Captain Alving, and of course the daughter that is born, Regina, is... Joanna's and Captain Alving's daughter. Captain Alving dies 10 years ago, so does Joanna, the maid in town, and uh, Regina, who is now 10 years old, is, by a, a recommendation of Pastor Manders, is taken into the house to become a maid in the house. Is this because he doesn't know that Regina is actually Alving's... Oh, Mrs. Alving knows that. But the pastor, does the he pastor know? The pastor doesn't. No, I see. The okay. pastor doesn't, yeah. Uh, and uh, so now this is uh, ten years later. Uh, about three years ago, Helen and Pastor Manders started plotting for the opening of 
Captain Alving Memorial Orphans Home, which is to be built on the property of the estate. A farm is being converted into that memorial. And this is now 20-something years since 26 years or something since Pastor Manders stepped into, you know, that family, so to speak. Um, Oswald, who is born four years into the marriage, the son of Captain and Mrs. Alving, he's been shipped away by her to Paris when he was only seven years old because the situation in the house was such that he was beginning to catch up on certain things that he shouldn't have known. So he became an artist since then, and after his father died, so he's never been back since his father, you know, since he left at seven, but now when his father has died, he's beginning to come back. And so uh, he meets... Regina. Regina. Of course. <laughs> of course, right. Not knowing that she is right. his half-sister. And the only person left who knows this is... Uh, Mrs. Alving. Yes. Is Mrs. Alving, yeah. And uh, now everybody is suddenly coming to the Rosenwald estate. That's the name of the estate. Pastor Manders is coming on the occasion of dedication of the orphanage that's going to happen tomorrow. Carpenter Angstrand, who married Joanna, he is working as a carpenter on that project for two years now. So uh -huh. he's coming to convince his daughter to go to town with him, to leave Alvings and go to town with him, because he wants to start a uh, reputable hotel for seamen, of course, a brothel of sorts. Uh, and he needs a woman on the premises. And who is better than his daughter to be a partner? Uh, so, Mr. Uh, Pastor Alving is there on the uh, occasion of the dedication, obviously. And uh, all of them basically come together. Regina is the only maid in the, in the house at the moment because all other maids and all other staff is preparing for the unveiling of the orphanage tomorrow, and she's the only one. And so these five people, Mrs. Alving, Pastor, Oswald, Regina, and Regina's father, right. who is not really her father, you know, Angstern, uh, they are suddenly together in, in this whirlpool of uh, revelations because a lot of revelations is going to happen, including the fact that um, Oswald inherited a disease from his father and that he is going to go insane from that disease. Oh, my goodness. And he is hoping that Regina will take care of him. But will Regina actually want to be involved with an invalid? And does she have some other plans? And, of course... Pastor Manders, who gave up his happiness, and arguably, you know, their mutual happiness, uh, is uh, going to also find out that he was acting on false pretense because, of course, after he restored Mrs. Alvin to her husband, uh, her husband did not amend his ways and continued to be exactly the same man as he has been until the moment he died. Okay, so are you saying that this is where the play starts? This is where the play starts, yes. Oh so you God. see there's a whole play before the play. How do you know that? Oh, because it comes out in the play. Exactly. I see. Exactly, yeah. Wow. Well, in that case, we don't have to say another word because <laughs> because this is, this is a terrific uh, preview yeah. for the play. Yeah. So in each of Ibsen's play, take a doll's house, right? Take any other play. Uh, 
the woman from the sea that we've also done here, uh, just as we've done Nora at Doll's House. Um, take any play. There is a whole play or maybe a movie that can be filmed or written based on the events that happened prior to the rising of the curtain in an Ibsen play. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm assuming, because um, I don't know all the plays, but um, that in every one, that information comes out in the play. Exactly. Right? Exactly. That's amazing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't think you have to say another word. I think that's <laughs> terrific. Thank you so much, Andre. Absolutely. Thank you. <laughs> I'll see you opening night. Excellent. It is clear listening to Andre, that he always knew who he was, what he wanted, what drew him, what excited him, what he wanted to do. And as I said in the opening, he was one of the lucky ones who received complete acceptance and permission for everything that he is. And as a result, he can do all of the things that he was drawn to, interested in, compelled by. And as a result of that, we have the gift of all of the things that he has become. It is my hope when you listen to people like Andre that you're asking yourself, is this how I feel about my life? Do I have permission to risk to try the things that feel right to me? I hope that you do, but if you don't, please believe me, it may not be too late to recover some of what you may have left behind. As always, I hope you got something you can use from this show. Something that inspired you, something that tickled you, something that you learned. Something that will enhance your life. You see, I'm getting older. My hair is turning gray. Oh, you say my face and figure have both seen better days. Well, I won't be retiring. I won't slip out of sight, no I will not go gentle Into that good night I won't go with a whimper I am going with a bang Life's a song I keep on singing Not a tune that I once sang I just keep returning like some goddamn boomerang No, I won't go with a whimper I am going with a bang You see that I have had my shot My time has come and gone Oh, won't I please get off the stage Let someone else get on Well, I, I won't be relegated Or leave without a fight No, I will not go gentle Into that good night I won't go with a whimper I am going with a bang Life's a bell I keep on ringing Not a chime that I once rang You may think it's unseemly Well, I don't give a dang No, I won't go
I may have gotten 